Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today we have a very special guest. She's probably our number one fan, Jenny. (laughs) It's good to know we have one. (laughs) I know. I think at least somebody's listening to this podcast, right? Um, she's, She's listened to a lot of them and probably almost all of them. She has called me to to talk about them and to process them and to say, oh, my gosh, this one on, you know, so it's been fun. It's been fun to, to have somebody actually listen to the podcast and call me up to share her thoughts and feelings about it. This guest is my very special sister-in-law. She is my husband's little brother's wife. Got it. So that is how she walked into my life. The day I met her, I fell madly in love. We ended up going to Target. Do you remember the story? Yes. <laughs> and it was like fall, winterish time, and and it was raining. And we got uh, some umbrellas, and we we bought red leather gloves. Yeah. And we had matching red leather. Oh, I gloves hope you took for... a picture of that day. Uh, probably not, but maybe <laughs> somebody ruined my gloves. I'm still bitter. <laughs> I know I lost one and I was so devastated. I was like, Oh no. <laughs> anyway, silly things we do. Linda has, she has quite a story actually, just like all of us. Life doesn't ever just happen in, in one bad thing in our life or one challenging issue or one little struggle. Linda lost her mother to cancer at 16. We are not going to do that story today. Nope. And when I met Linda, she was young. She had a ton of energy. She was positive and vivacious. And she had just told me the story about how she lost her first husband. Wow. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So Linda, welcome to the show. And I'm so glad you're here to finally share there's so many things that I know about you that we could share on the show, but but this is uh, going to be a two-part series. We're going to talk about John first, and then we're going to talk about marrying my brother-in-law, my favorite brother-in-law, David Scharf. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, It really is an honor to be here, and I was just saying before we started, like it's pretty emotional thinking about your entire life and trying to put it into 20 minutes, 40 <laughs> minutes, and then this happened. So... You want me just to yeah, yeah, just give us a little background. Get, Introduce yourself yeah. to us. I know Michelle knows a lot about you and, and who you are and your past and everything. I have no idea who you are. I've never met you before right now. So, Well, I am a transformative being, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I'm 45. <laughs> I think my life started very young. and um, For sure it did. Yeah. Uh, Michelle pretty well summed it up. You were a Jessup. I was a Jessup. I am very passionate about a lot of things. Yes. I find most people are passionate about a lot of stuff. I try not to be the kind of passionate person that throws everything in your face. (laughs) But I am passionate about food. For sure. 
I love something delicious, and recently my diet has become restricted, so I don't get to eat as many delicious things. And then you have to just kind of change your idea on what delicious means. That's hard. (laughs) (laughs) I love life. I think I'm a vivacious, fun person to be around. I enjoy people. I love people so much. I'm a people watcher. (laughs) (laughs) I've... Uh, been known to buy sunglasses, you know, with like, what is it, the mirrored edges yeah. so that I could just legit sit and stare at people because <laughs> they fascinate me. That's, I love to do that, too. I'm kind of like a, maybe you've seen this happen at like the airport where, I don't know, you're going somewhere and maybe there's nobody there to greet you. So one time we were going somewhere, my dad, my cousin, my stepmom, we were at the airport and I was like, wait, this is all wrong. Stay here. And I walked down, I don't know, 20 feet and I turned around and I was like, <gasps> you're here. And then I ran over and gave everybody a hug. And, ah, we made a big scene. And then we grabbed our bags and kept walking. You were the greeter. Yeah, I was the greeter. I would make an excellent greeter at church. Just welcome all the people. I love this. So tell us tell us your story then. Tell us about John. Tell us about your, your youth, your young, early years. Okay. Well, I think that everybody through life goes through phases where you have to really just kind of figure out who you are. So I started as little Linda Jane. I was just a kid doing kid things, living my kid life. And then, like Michelle said, my mom died when I was 16. And I had to decipher what that meant. What does that mean? And so now I'm Linda without a mom. I'm a big sister. My dad said that I was his right-hand man. I was his biggest helper. I mean, forget about what Brian, Micah, Danny, Ramadan, and Kelly, and Dixie were doing. Those are all me. the siblings. Uh, it's all about me. <laughs> yeah. By the way, for for those of you who could not catch any names out of that, there's a lot me, of siblings. It took me a long time to decipher. What is she saying? Oh, that's all the siblings' names. <laughs> we used to have races to see who could say everybody's names the fastest. I'm pretty sure I'm the winner. It's all about me, like I said. Um, as a kid, I never enjoyed doing things by myself. I uh, nothing, nothing by myself. I didn't want to go to the store by myself. I'd see people at restaurants and I'd think, oh, how sad for them. Look at that. They are alone. And um, people go to movies by themselves. I'm like, oh, my gosh. How do you do that? By yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, my friend Heather and I, we uh, used to say that um, Tuesday night was good looking guy night at Harmon's. Whether or not it was, uh, every Tuesday we'd hop in the car driving down to Harmon's, you know. There. They all are in the produce. At the grocery yeah. store. Uh, the microwave aisle. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's where I need to go. Harmon's. <laughs> Surprise. All right. Tuesday night. I'm blocking that out good of my calendar. Good looking guy night at Harmon's. Okay. So maybe if you're a good looking guy and you're listening, you should head over on Tuesday. On Farmington. <laughs> Station Park. <laughs> so a little later on in my life, in my early 20s, I decided to serve a mission for my church. So now I am... Not just Linda or Linda without a mom, but now I become Sister Jessup. And when you serve a mission for the church, you pretty much get rid of your first name. You go by sister if you're a woman and go by elder if you're a man. And you pretty much have this little box around yourself. You don't intrude other people's personal space. You might give hugs to, you know, your companion or, you know, some close people. But you've got like this box around you. On my mission, I had a lovely time, by the way. And I did get in trouble once for acting in a less than missionary-like fashion. And I was like, what? Is that the Uh, written-up infraction? Yeah. uh, I said, you know, I was sure I knew who had turned me in. And I said, that elder does not like me, President. I don't even know what happened. 
And he's like, he only has nice things to say about you. And I thought, well, everybody else loves me. What? I don't understand this. <laughs> so anyways, I had a, just a, a lovely time on my mission. And one of my dearest friends that I met became one of my companions was Natalie Luke. I thought for sure um, we could never be friends. I thought she was too cool for me to be my friend. But it turned out we just had the most fantastic time. And I learned so much from her. And while we were serving together, she told me about her friend, Brother John. She wanted me to meet her friend, Brother John. And I was all about that idea. Because on a mission, you don't date, right? So you save that for when you get home. So I come home from my mission. And now I am return missionary, Linda. And I have to say, a lot of times when people come home from a mission, you're a little bit weird. <laughs> you, you come home and uh, you don't know how to just have regular conversations with people. And because you're used to talking about gospel topics, you're talking about Jesus and how families can be together forever and how you are all children of God and how you are loved. And then you come home and I kind of became a mute. Like, I didn't know what to say to anybody. I was just like... I couldn't make conversation to save my life. So I have a friend, a different friend, Heather, who served around the same time as I did. She came home and um, we made a goal that we were going to touch boys, men. That sounds creepy, but, you know, innocent, you know, on the shoulder or the arm. Because remember, you don't, you've got this little box around yourself. So we made a, a goal. It was really kind of funny. We were at Chili's and we had this guy that was our server and we we ordered Uh, chips and salsa we decided like while he was gone getting the chips and salsa to have this goal and then when he came back both of us like at the same time I'm sure he was totally creeped out we both like touched him on the arm like (laughs) reach over and we're like uh he's like snatches his arm out of there get me out of here these ladies are crazy but you know this was our goal to get ourselves out of our weirdness so by being weird yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) trying something new here you know so my friend Natalie had a birthday party. She invited me to. It was in January. And so her and her roommates, I told them about my goal. They thought it was hilarious. So at this party, there's this big group of people. And one of the friends there said, hey, Linda, you should tell these guys about your goal. And I was like, no, if you tell them about it, that ruins everything. They'll know it won't work. And they were like, no, no. And they, I was, you know, kind of bullied into telling people what my goal was. So there was this guy, Mark from Haiti. And he was standing there, and I just went over to him, and I said, okay, well, my friend Heather and I decided that we were going to touch boys. Because here's the fact is, is if somebody is touching you, you all of a sudden become hypersensitive, hyper-aware. You know what is going on. So I went over to Mark, and I put my hand on his, just like his bicep, and I said, so we've made a a goal to touch boys. And I put my hand on his bicep, and I might have pat him on the chest, and he goes, his eyes got to the size of dinner plates, and he was like, Wow! You are going to get married quick. (laughs) (laughs) So the room erupts with laughter. And then John was there. He wasn't in this group. So he comes over and he wants to know what we're all laughing at. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to tell you. (laughs) It ruins everything. Anyways, I told him about my goal. And then I got asked out on a date. So apparently it still works if people know about (laughs) what you're doing, your shenanigans. So. Uh, John and I, uh, we got married August 25th, 2000. Well, when did you meet him? So, At that birthday party. So how long? We dated for three or three or four months. It's very quick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, we don't waste time. 
I only had a short amount of time. I didn't know. So John was a genius, like a bona fide genius. I mean, his name is Jonathan James Thurston Gemmel. Doesn't that just sound smart? It sounds smart. Very smart. (laughs) John could read over 20 dead languages. This is something that I was just fascinated with. Egyptian hieroglyphs, Ugaritic, Sumerian, Akkadian, Aramaic. He could read Hebrew. When I brought him over to my house to introduce him to my family, I'm, you know, telling my dad about this smart guy that I'm dating. And my sister pipes in with, yeah, but do you know Pig Latin? And I'm like, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe she thought it was a real language. Uh, Maybe. I I don't know Pig Latin. So he also taught himself calligraphy to impress a girl. I mean, who does that kind of stuff? (laughs) We never had a fight from the day we got married. We never fought. Um, He did all of the laundry. Wow. Yeah. He didn't want me to have to do any laundry until after we had children. Uh, he made me dinner. I'd come home. There'd be salmon in the oven. I don't know. Maybe we had real reversal. He was a stay-at-home husband, and I was the working wife. <laughs> he was working, though, right? He, he yeah. He worked at BYU yeah. uh, translating Cause you, cuneiform cause documents. Because you said that there was a real reversal. He was a stay-at-home. But that's not really but no, true. he was going to school full-time right. Right. Yeah, at BYU. And studying things that nobody knows about. Secrets. Right. Right. (laughs) So uh, we had a fantastic banter all the time. Just really fun conversation all the the time. He also suffered from insomnia. So, you know, I got used to going to bed by myself. About five and a half months into our marriage, uh, John started, he just really just wasn't feeling very well. And um, so I took him to the doctor. And the doctor said, you know what, John? I think you are depressed. I'm going to put you on Zoloft because I've got I've got stock in that. And that infuriated me. To me, it didn't feel like he was being put on this medication because it was really the best option for him. It was because this guy is how it felt anyway. I've got stock in that. Let's mm-hmm. put you here. So one night, this was just totally out of the ordinary he ended up going to bed before me, and that was weird. I, I was on the phone with somebody, and I was like, yeah, John's in bed. That is so weird. Well, I went to bed that night. Um, the next morning, I woke up. It was five days shy of six months of being married. My alarm didn't go off that morning, and uh, gosh, I jumped out of bed, and I ran to the bathroom, and I came back, and I pat him on the face to ask him if he would run out and start my car for me, and he was cold. So he had died sometime during the night. And I called my dad immediately. It's like I knew he was dead. And I called my dad immediately. He had just lived two blocks away. I said, I think John's dead. And he said, I'll be right over. And then I called 911 and they came. They were on their way. My dad got there first. And so my dad came in and he started CPR while John was laying there on the bed. And it's one of those those sounds that you will never forget. Um. When you blow air into someone's mouth and they're not living, it is just this hollow sound that comes out. And that just, you know, sits with me. It sat with me for just a super long time. Um, I, <laughs> you know me, Michelle, and my personality. Mm-hmm. And the police get there and the fire department is there and... They're asking me questions. He had um, 
scars on his arms. He donated a lot of plasma. I guess he had the antibodies or whatever that they really like to have. So he did that a lot. <laughs> and the, I don't know, the fire chief was like, I see those marks on his arms. And I'm thinking in my head, we do recreational drugs. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> we were just having a good time. And I'm thinking, don't say anything. They'll think you did it. You know, I'm like working through all these, these. I'm still myself on the inside, even though right. like this thing is like unfolding in front of me. I'm, right. So I, I, I can see your brain going there. <laughs> good oh. thing it didn't fall out. Yeah. Yeah. So I just was like, be quiet. Don't. I'm like, uh, he donates plasma. <laughs> so pretty much at this point, I stopped remembering anything. I couldn't remember anything. If there was something I needed to go to and there was probably something important that I would need to know later, I would take some. Remember, I, I don't go anywhere by myself anyway. So I would take people with me so that I could refer to my living memory bank over here. of What happened? <laughs> How? What? Mm? So I was just thankful to have people around me that I could do that with. Now... I have also got to figure out who I am again. I went to a BYU. They graduated him after he died. And I went and met one of, with one of the professors that he was working with. And we're walking through these offices to get somewhere. I, I can't remember where we were going, but the, the professor said to somebody, oh, this is John Gemmell's widow. And I was like, oh, uh, I'm John Gemmell's widow. Like I hadn't. Like, I knew I was a widow, but I hadn't put it in so many words. And so... So, I, Linda, did, did they ever tell you what happened? Do you know why he died in his sleep that night? Well, they say there's 3% of people who die, and they can never find a reason. And he was one of those 3%. Oh, my gosh. So... Young. He was 27. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's no conclusive he had this unknown heart condition or something you didn't... Nope. No heart wow. condition. No... Brain aneurysm. They're just there was just undetermined natural causes. And they is what say was that's three percent of. Yeah, kind of like a, an adult form of SIDS. SIDS. Yeah. Oh my gosh, how terrible! So, how old were you at that time? Were you his same age? I got married at twenty four and widowed at twenty five. And you know, I thought first time I've married for love. Next time I'm going straight for the money. <laughs> <laughs> These were my thoughts. <laughs> Do I you see why I love her I love so that much. You can have a sense of humor in the moment because, like, <laughs> oh, she's totally I, got our dry, yeah, morbid I, I widow have, humor. I can have widow humor now, but I'll tell you, the day Brent died, there was nothing funny in my in no. my head for sure. No, so I'm I'm impressed that you could like oh, be cracking she, jokes inside of oh, your head. Oh, she's ridiculous though. She's <laughs> off. She's so off the charts funny. I'm over I'm, there making up. I'm like, okay, pick up lines at some point, right? <laughs> you look just like my second husband, and they will say. How many have you had? And I could say one. <laughs> uh, see, these are the kinds of things that when I'm left to my own devices, I don't know. Not very productive. Oh anyway. Anyway, she's hilarious. We're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we will pick up and uh, continue on the story. back with my sister-in-law, Linda Scharf, and you were just telling us what it was, the process of losing John and that there really were no answers, but now you're 25 and you're, you're a widow. You're a newlywed widow. Yeah. A newlywed widow. Well, um, 
to start off my widowhood, I think I just gave myself a lot of really unrealistic expectations. People would tell me, Linda, you should write your feelings down. And I thought, I'm going to write my feelings down. So I got this little journal, and I'm writing things in a thing. And my legit two weeks after my husband died, I wrote down in my journal, I have got to figure out how to get over this depression. Oh, wow. Like, rather than just giving myself a break. uh... (laughs) You're such a happy, vivacious, energetic person. And you're still so young when that happens. I can't imagine taking that base personality, adding the grief of widowhood to it. I'm sure it felt so foreign to you. Yeah. Well, one thing, I just think that what happens when people experience trauma is you completely lose your rational thinking. I think everybody does. For sure. Well, and I would have to go back a little bit because even though we didn't start with this story, you lost your mom at 16. You were the oldest child of, or you're the oldest, right? Second oldest Second oldest of eight. Pretty much you, you you took over a huge role at 16 of kind of being a surrogate mom in mm-hmm. a lot of ways to your siblings. And so we know when we experience trauma, there's that other level, right? So you've lost your mom. You've had that grief. You may or may not have been able to really process that very well. And yeah. then you get married. You are finding your way in the world. And all of a sudden, all of that's pulled. Now you have secondary trauma. Yeah. I, and it reignites that I first found trauma. that I, when my mom died, I shoved all of my feelings down in my nooks and crannies. Mm-hmm. And then when my husband died, I didn't have any more nooks and crannies. There were no more. No. I was an emotional basket case all the time. I watched a lot of QVC because... <laughs> That's dangerous. <laughs> I never bought anything, but I would watch it forever because... They can just talk forever about nothing. It's not drama. Yeah. It's not love. It's filler. It's, yeah, just filler. it's just was filler. I stopped listening to the radio wholeheartedly. I couldn't handle anything with a beat uh, or love. Something I thought was really fascinating is something so not physical to me. I didn't die. My husband died. But my hands began sweating terribly. Or they would itch really bad. If I'd get like an itchy spot on my forehead or my neck, I would be afraid to scratch it because it would just break out in hives. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I I found also that people are very uncomfortable with your grief. People are very uncomfortable. And also, people want you to grieve the way that they do because that is comfortable for them. So I remember I would call my dad up every now and again, just kind of freaking out. My life is imploding. And he'd say to me, Linda, because, you know, he's been through this before. What you need to do is get on some of that St. John's wort. <laughs> and I'd say... <laughs> Pop, I think that if there's ever a time people are going to be understanding of my grief, it's right now while yeah. I'm going through it, not in five years when I want to get off of whatever, Zoloft or whatever, right. <laughs> whatever that pill was. Uh, yeah. And um, and so I was very adamant that I was not going to go on anything because I need to process what I'm going through. I started going immediately to a therapist and I found out pretty quickly that he was not the one for me. About three months into this, I'm coming into his office, sobbing my eyes out, and he's trying to, you know, get to the underlying reason why I'm crying today. <laughs> You're like, yeah. oh. and then my husband died. Uh, and so he says to me, Linda, how would you feel if Jonathan found somebody, you know, to be with while he was waiting for you to come and get there? And I'm thinking... This is a terrible idea. He is going to find some Egyptian woman who can really explain to him what those hieroglyphs mean, right? And I will, you know, he's not going to be interested in me anymore. And then he goes on to say this. He says, because then there will there will come a point in your life where you will betray your spouse. He's this word this betray. Whoa, this is the therapist? Yeah. Yeah, stop. I think yeah. he's trying to figure, you know, I he just 
a poor choice of wording. I don't, Mm-mm. you know, I don't truly believe that's what he meant. Sure. But he said, you know, and then you will betray your spouse and you will move on and you'll date and you'll probably fall in love and, and most likely have children with somebody else. But I cannot move past this word betray. I am like, what? And it threw me over the edge. Oh I goodness. no longer wanted to live. I wanted to die. Now, I wasn't going to kill myself because that would probably be rude and everybody else you know, would suffer. But if I so much as got a paper cut, I was going to give up the ghost. I was ready. <laughs> I was ready to go. And so I'm driving down the road this one day. I'm driving down to see my friend Natalie. And I need to get to the next line over, lane over on the freeway. And I look in my mirror and there's nobody there. And so I start moving. And then I looked and there was somebody in my blind spot. And I am bawling. I'm sobbing at this point. Anyways, and I see this person, and then I jerk myself back into the middle lane, and then I burst out laughing. Because here I am at my lowest point. I want to die. And that was my exit. <laughs> and it's my natural reaction to save myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was, I could, oh. I, and then I just was laughing. I just thought that was so funny. It's the kind of the realization moment, right? That, that you're like, oh, I really want to die, but I guess I really don't. But I guess I'm here to stay. <laughs> I'm telling you, a paper cut. I would have died. I'm willing, <laughs> giving up the ghost at that point. I'm ready. Um, I also, uh, I began suffering from survivor's guilt. I suffered. I know mostly this is people. I know guilt is a big part of grief. And I know yeah. survivor's guilt is big from military. You know, you, they lost their comrades. They are the ones that lived. I felt guilty for going out to eat. I felt guilty for watching television. Mm-hmm. I felt guilty for buying new clothes. I felt guilty. This is the big one. I felt guilty. I'd get a call from a telemarketer and they'd be like, is John there? And I'd say, he died. And then they'd be like, oh no, what happened? And then I'd tell them. And then I now feel guilty for ruining their day because this is how much power I have over people. I can ruin your day (laughs) by the news of my tragedy. Mm -hmm. I'm very powerful. (laughs) So I, uh, I had PTSD also. So I suffered flashbacks almost at every single stoplight I would pull up to. I'd pull up to a stoplight. I'd see him dead. I'd see my dad's CPR. I'd hear the sound of his hollow sound coming out of his chest. And then the light would turn green. And you'd have to start back into life. Yeah. Yeah. Repeatedly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I started seeing a new counselor and... um, she was really great. For my one-year wedding anniversary, I went on a cruise to the Bahamas with my mm-hmm. sister-in-law. And I felt like I left all of my anxiety and my PTSD and everything. Just I just left at home, sitting here, festering, waiting for me to get back. And I said to the counselor, um, should I move? And she said, well, Linda, a lot of people choose to move for that very reason. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, and really quickly, the anxiety that I had, I couldn't get a full breath of air. I just wow. felt like I could not breathe. For years, and I talked to so many people about this. I'm like, I can't, I can't breathe. I can't get air. And then nobody can explain this to me. And I'm just going to give you a little piece of advice right now. It's probably because your lungs are already full. Just blow all that out. <laughs> <laughs> nobody can tell me this. I'm, oh, so, and now I can breathe. It's kind of a really big deal. <laughs> Uh, so I ended up moving to California and I lived with my friend Natalie's parents. It was just me, her mom and her dad, you know, hanging out. My friend wasn't even there. I live Barbara and Larry Luke. They saved my life. Oh, I met her. 
Did you at my wedding? Yes, at your wedding. Yes. Yeah. She planned the whole thing. Yeah. She she is like you think I'm bubbly? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's amazing. She's great. So I moved to California. Barbara, she prearranged a whole set of new best friends for me. She buys me a new wardrobe because if you look good, you might feel good. Mm-hmm. And then she gave me gas money. I started seeing a new therapist while I was there, and this lady was amazing. I told her about all my guilt, right? And she just looked at me, and she said, Linda, you need to save your guilt for sin. Is it a sin to eat food? Uh, no, I guess not. Is it a sin to buy clothes? Is it a sin to watch TV? Now, if you're going to go out and do something heinous, yes, by all means. Feel guilty. Feel guilty. That is what guilt is designed for. But for talking to people about and what that registered to you? with you, you were able to yes. accept that new view. I yes. love that. She gave me permission, like legit. I give you permission to not feel guilt over that. And I was mm-hmm. like, thank you. Wow. And I just felt like this weight lifted mm-hmm. off my shoulders. I also grieved the future that I lost. Hardcore. I mean, he made all the dinners and did all the laundry for Pete's sake. And then all of a sudden, I got to figure out how to work the ding machine. <laughs> this was terrible. And so I had grieved my whole future. And I talked to my counselor about this. I said, I think, I think maybe I need to get a gratitude journal. Like, maybe I'm just not grateful. And she looked at me and she said, I don't think gratitude is your problem. She said, you need a things to look forward to journal. And I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. And so this was a huge turning point for me. I realized that it was up to me to save myself. And I'm not talking Jesus save, but I'm talking to make my life happen and to take charge of my own happiness. You know, I went from like only doing things with everyone else to figuring, you know what? I want to do this. I want to do that. And that was so eye opening to me and so huge for me to be able to say, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. And Maybe it doesn't sound like rocket science, but some of us have to learn that it is okay to give ourselves permission to be happy and to not suffer from guilt for things that aren't a sin or to go somewhere by yourself. I want you to know I can go. I love going places by myself. It's like my favorite activity. (laughs) And just to make your own life happen, that is a big deal. And I think some of us just need permission for that. You have to give yourselves permission. Other people, they just do it. Like it's a no brainer, but for some of us out there, it's not so easy. I was working for a chiropractor, Dr. Gardner, and my coworker, Eloisa, and they were super sensitive to my grief and everything that I was going on. I was taking a college psychology class, you know, trying to figure myself out. My single life, I was encompassed with uh, those uh, church and those prearranged new best friends. They turned out to be amazing best friends. I first met Christine Ashton and shortly Angela Frederick. And we were a pretty inclusive group. We hung out with everybody. Monday night, we had family home evening, just like in a spiritual thought and maybe a little snack. Wednesday, we had scripture study. Friday or Saturday, we'd go dancing or somebody would have a pool party or we'd go to a movie. We were so busy. And then Sunday was church. And I love church, but I hated Sundays. Because by this point in my life, I'm renting a room, go to church, and I'd come home to myself. To watch TV. Remember, I felt guilty <laughs> for watching TV. And then I told my friend Christine about just how hard Sundays were for me. And after that point, her family started inviting me over to their house for dinner. And that just made such a difference in my life. I made so many friends, but with my memory issues, sometimes I didn't remember their names 
or worse, I didn't even remember meeting them. So I'd have people. Brand new friend every time. They're so great. You know, they'd come in for a hug and I'm thinking to myself, who have are we you? met? <laughs> you know, giving these hugs to people. I've met a few guys that I really liked. I really liked a few guys. I also had a few guys tell me that they would date me, but I was already sealed. So, And when I sealed in the church, you know, you get married forever. For time and for all eternity. So I basically ruined the Latter-day Saint dream of a forever family. I feel like I'm damaged goods and nobody wants me. So, and also I have big time issues with betraying my spouse. Hmm. So I think that it's human nature to fixate on technicalities. We want to feel like we have control over our lives. And I think that if we really believe what we say we believe... And we believe that God is in the details of our lives and that he really is in charge. And if we are fortunate enough to make it to heaven, whether I'm sealed to John or sealed to somebody in my future, I don't believe the other person is going to be left hanging. I believe that somebody would be provided for them. Now, I also don't believe that there is celestial riffraff. I don't think that it's going to be like when you're in elementary school and you have to do a project with somebody and you got stuck with stupid. <laughs> right? Just Hope, say it. Hopefully. Don't hold back. What, what exactly do you mean by that? <laughs> I don't know. People make t-shirts. <laughs> I know. We have a lot of t-shirts to be made out of this episode alone. <laughs> so, but I think... I think, you know, if we really do get to heaven, I don't think you're going to be disappointed with the people that you're hanging out with. So I think we'll be happy with the outcome. I think that God wants us to be happy. And if he's in charge and we're letting him be in charge because we're not trying to have too much control, he wants happiness for us. So also when we're sealed, if we have any children, they'll be sealed to us forever. And so my children that I have one day will be sealed to John. And I think that kids, in my opinion, are kind of a moot point. People want to fixate on this particular issue. And here's what I think. Let's say you die and you get to heaven and you're with somebody. I don't think you're going to have a lot of toddlers running around all the time. Oh, there's that little child I had once. <laughs> you know, I think hopefully they will grow up and do the same thing. Find someone to be with and someone that they can love forever. And ceiling, a ceiling is a connection. And I believe that we are all children of God and that we are all connected. It got very serious towards the end there. Sorry. <laughs> That got kind of heavy and spiritual and religious. No, that's it, it's great. I think that a lot of people listening will agree with you about God being in the details and and kind of surrendering ourselves to trust in a greater plan. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, your resiliency and what you really learned in this process. And we'll be right back. back with Linda Scharf and uh, powerful story. I mean, I'll never forget you sitting on my couch and telling me the story and I was just floored. It, it was not even something I could comprehend 
I was a young mom. I had four kids running around my house. It's just losing a spouse, especially so young, was just not even in my in my purview. Like I just, it was so out of. I remember just feeling like my blood had gone to my feet when you told me what had happened. (laughs) I'm pretty sure mine did too. (laughs) Yeah, such a crazy life experience to have had. Talk to us about resiliency. What did you learn from this experience? Well, I learned that there are some words that I really hate. And some of those particular words are, I could never do that. I had a lot of people tell me that. And I believe that resiliency is learning that you can. You can do whatever is put right in front of you. And the pain that you suffer is hallowed, I believe. That God can make what you go through holy. And I'll tell you right now, it doesn't feel holy while you're going through it sometimes. I think sometimes we become very numb. But I also believe that those are the times that we are being carried. I could legit feel people's prayers for me. And I think that's amazing. So I think whatever God puts in front of us, it is there to make us stronger. And I also think that what we go through is not meant only for us, but it is meant for other people as well. I think that you're you're right about that. It's interesting. You say, um, you don't like hearing I could I could never do that. Um, same. <laughs> and I'm sure Jenny hundred <laughs> percent. It's one of those things that you're like, Well, you know what? I never thought I could do it either. But guess what? Here you are. <laughs> Nobody gave me a choice. You know what? And, and if it wasn't your choice, if you don't get to have that choice, you'll be doing this too. So actually you could, and we just don't have a choice about it. But thanks. <laughs> thanks for thinking that I'm something special for offering, actually suffering this out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a hard deal. I love what you've said about resiliency being, um, and you mentioned this before, giving yourself permission. And I'm like you. I, I need someone to grant me that permission, even though they have no authority to grant right. me permission. I've yes. I've actually said those words before um, in a couple of circumstances when talking with a friend or someone. I've found myself saying, I need someone to give me permission to dot, dot, dot. Oh, and, Jenny, and there was something whenever about Whenever you that. need permission, I'll you call just you. call me. <laughs> I will give it to you. I Thank you, too. Michelle. But I, I identify with that. I understand what you're saying where you whether you're feeling the guilt or you feel trapped or it it's just there've been times in my in my widowhood these past couple of years where I have needed someone to give me permission to be able to do what I know I needed to do mm-hmm. or to feel what I know I needed to feel it's like I already knew the answer I didn't need someone to give me that answer mm-hmm. I don't need someone to tell me what to do cuz that's really annoying but sometimes you need someone that can give you the permission and I think that's a beautiful way to help someone that's grieving or help someone that's struggling with whatever their their issue or their challenge is. But seeing how um, you also, the, the other thing I really loved is looking forward to things. Yeah. And that's very, that works in my brain too. Like I, I can get caught in the past. I can get caught in the emotion. I can get wound up in, in what ifs. And the future can be very scary. I can't imagine being 25 and widowed. I, I sometimes am terrified of the future I lost. And right. I had a lot of the future with my husband. I had a lot of memories and and there's times when that feels so terrifying. And so to be able to say, but here's something I can look forward to. 
mm-hmm. an opportunity with my kids. Uh, maybe it's a trip we're going on somewhere or a, a book I want to read or something that feels like, oh, the future doesn't have to terrify me. I can be hopeful about something Little or big, the next meal, whatever it is, the next QVC episode, or I don't think we've called episodes. But, and, and then I really appreciated what you said about, I totally forgot to say, hold on. Maybe Pause just that. be grateful that QVC exists because you yeah. can turn it on at any time and get lost yes. immediately. I'm right? going to talk about stuff all day long. Non-stop. They talk about stuff just not, they come up with the most ridiculous ways to okay, talk about now. things. and. And I, I also love how you're talking about resilience and your concept of your faith for the ultimate future, not just future in this life, but whatever your concept of the afterlife is. And and this concept that heaven is not going to be a miserable place. Mm-hmm. And the love I share with people during my life that shaped me and helped me grow, I'm not going to lose that automatically when I get wherever I'm ending up. And I think that's a beautiful outlook for you to have and to share with the rest of us that God is loving. Heaven is a beautiful goal we all aspire to, whatever your concept of heaven is. And to think that we do get, we get so caught up in worldly details, mortal details, without realizing that I'm just, I'm just going to work on trying to put one foot in front of the other, try to be a good person, try to love and develop the relationships I have. And then I'm going to let God work out those details because um, that's, that's a lot. My, my dad died when I was younger. My mom was sealed to him. We're of the same faith as you. And then years later, she remarried, and years later, she's now sealed to my stepdad. Mm-hmm. And that was a very difficult, um, it was it was kind of a no-brainer. We're like, well, of course you should be sealed to him. You love him. You've shared a life with him. But of course, it was difficult. And and I just remember in the moment, you know, we as children all talking about it and being with our parents, my, my stepdad and mom, for this sealing and this, this next step of their mortal life and this concept of heaven. And I remember very clearly thinking, my dad loves my mom enough. He wants her to be happy and at peace in this life. And whatever that looks like, God's going to figure out the rest of it after we're all done here. But while we're here, that's going to be something that brings peace and love. And I love the thought of that. Not Let's not get stuck in those details of what we don't know and how it all ties together. But just know that we we have the relationships we have. We have the love we have with each other, with God. And if we get to heaven, it's not going to be a miserable place. So I love that. There is just peace in letting go of that. Yeah. It's when you're like hanging on, you know. The surrender versus the fixation. Yeah. 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 And that's a huge principle of resilience, to be able to surrender versus be fixated on. So I was thinking about how we all grieve differently. You know, I had mentioned how my dad told me to take the St. John's word and I had a lot of people say, you know what, Linda, you know what you need to do? This or this or this. And people just would throw out their ideas because if anybody's ever had an experience before, they've been through something hard before, they think that their way is the right way. And I think it's really important that if you are going through something, you're grieving, you're having, whether it's the loss of someone or just a grieving process in general, to find out what is your way and be okay with your version of grieving because your your version is the right way for you and their way was the right way for them. Thank you for sharing so much with us and we're really excited for our second episode when we're going to continue this story. What happened after you buried your first husband? How it is you met your current husband, the family you have now and what life has looked like in the years that have passed since. Thank you for your your hope, the personality that you have is just energetic, and I'm really grateful that we've been able to talk. Looking forward to part two. 
To all of our listeners, if you've liked what you've heard, we hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast. Give us a rating and a review wherever you find your podcast. That helps us to make the show better. And if you or someone you know has a real story about real life that you're willing to share with us, please contact us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today, be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Thank you. Thank you.